And of course, it's Super Sunday. But uh, you all know that whatever happens tonight will be anticlimactic. Uh, this, I, I genuinely believe this, that this right here is the high point of the day. Everything else will be downhill from this. So uh, I want to help prepare our hearts for that, and then Thor will come and uh, lead us in that. Also, I want to bring you greetings from the Okaboji Bible Conference, where I'm still employed, though I'm no longer the executive director, which is a little strange. I'm the development director now, which is just a title they give you just before the door hits you in the rear end as you, <laughs> as you go out. But it's all right. It's been a good transition, and my successor, John Posley, is on the job. And I, um, I mentioned to a couple people that I hope he can come up and help you out in your pastoral transition sometime. He's a great young man. Uh, but I do greet you from the Bible conference. And um, I wanted to give you a word of good news this morning from Romans chapter 8. This word's kind of been on me for a few weeks. Uh, in, in response to some heaviness I was feeling. Now, it's easy to feel heavy when the wind chill is 60 below, but it wasn't the wind chill that was getting me down. And uh, I've been uh, to too many funerals lately, and that can kind of get you down also, uh, but it comes with the territory when when you get up around age 70 and after, some of your friends start going on ahead of you. And that's been happening of late. And uh, that's made me sad. But what hit me hardest, and uh, I think Thor uh, struck this a bit of a glancing blow in his prayer, what hit me the hardest was the New York State Assembly's decision to permit third trimester abortions. And along with that decision... The smiling, cheering, pink-lighted celebrations of that decision. It grieved me. And let me be clear, if you're here as a post-abortive woman or a man who was complicit at some time in your life in abortion, there is no crack in grace. God's grace is sufficient for that sin as it's sufficient for my sin. So I'm not here to pick on anybody individually except to offer the, the very thing we've just sung of, the forgiveness of Christ offered freely to all. But it does grieve me when the government leaders of a nation celebrate the taking of innocent life. And that, more than the cold, more than the funerals, uh, more than uh, no longer being the boss at my job and having to report to the boss, more than any of those things, that put a heaviness on me. And then just uh, two days ago, my single parent neighbor spoke to me through the car window. You know how that happens, kind of. She professes faith in Christ, but she lives in much fear. And she said, aren't you afraid of what's happening in the world? I think we're all going to be annihilated, she said, end quote. And I'd been reflecting on Romans chapter 8 for a few weeks and getting ready for today, and, and I'll use it again in a couple of weeks with some Lutheran friends down in the Lakes area. So it was in me, so I started preaching my sermon to her, which I'm not sure went over really well, because she was feeling a little pre-annihilation, and, and I was like, no, we're, 
more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Perhaps she'd read the news reports that came out on January 24, just a week or two ago, about the doomsday clock. You've heard of that. It's been around since 1947. That's just about as long as I've been around. Uh, and almost as long as you've been around. <laughs> uh, Diane, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll need a ride home. <laughs> The Doomsday Clock, established in 1947 by a group of nuclear scientists, they announced on January 24th they're going to keep the clock at two minutes till midnight. It's only been at two minutes to mid midnight for three, three different years, 53, 2018, and in 2019. They said we're going to keep it at two minutes till midnight. They said the world situation is what they call the new abnormal, quoting, this new abnormal is a pernicious and dangerous departure from the time when the U.S. sought a leadership role in designing and supporting global agreements, advancing a safer and healthier planet. The new abnormal describes a moment in which fact is becoming indistinguishable from fiction, undermining our very abilities to develop and apply solutions to the big problems of our time. That's why my neighbor's afraid. And that's why I bring this word before we receive the cup and the bread. How then shall we live in this nation, once, once Christian in root and core, but no longer so? Once anchored in God's laws, but no longer anchored, it seems, to anything. Jim Ekman, the former president of Grace University down in Omaha, sends out a little newsletter every week called Issues in Perspective. And a week ago, he wrote these words. For civilization to work, it needs a foundation, a set of moorings that provide an anchor for it to function reasonably, justly, and fairly. American civilization gives every indication that it has no foundation, no underpinning. The selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent individual has replaced the community-minded, other-centered, virtuous citizen, the glue that held American society together. And what held that virtuous citizen together? A Judeo-Christian ethical and moral compass. A respect for the Bible as a loving guideline from a loving God for human flourishing, a Christian life informed by the Bible, modeled by Christ, and guided by God's Spirit for us to love our neighbors as ourselves. The glue that held us together at the core across our history was the glue of being stuck to God by knowing His love and responding with faith. But here's what we know, signaled by a pink One World Trade Center celebration. We know we no longer live in that nation. But the God who nurtured the faith of our fathers hasn't changed. He's not moved. He's standing, waiting for the humble to confess their sins and to call on Him. Second Chronicles 7.14 is still true, this from the message. The word of God 
If I ever shut off the supply of rain from the skies or order the locusts to eat the crops or send a plague on my people and my people, my God-defined people respond by humbling themselves and praying and seeking my presence and turning their backs on their wicked lives, I'll be there ready for you. I'll listen from heaven and forgive your sins and restore your land to health. Whatever happens in our nation and world, I assure you that God will not abandon those who are his children in Christ. And we come today to sing of that. We come today to pray to that God so well led. We come today to receive the emblems in a ritual remembrance of what he's done for us, what he's doing for us, and what he will do for us. As often as you eat the bread and cup, you do show show forth my death till I come. And also to speak it in word from here to you, but actually from one another to encourage one another. I came across, and this may be old news to most of you, but for me it was uplifting in a time like this. The story of Isaac in Genesis 26. Isaac, the son of Abraham. Isaac, the one who was taken to Mount Moriah to be sacrificed because God told Abraham to kill his kid. And Abraham said, that doesn't sound fun. But God, if you said do it, I'll obey you. And then, of course, you remember on Mount Moriah, they found a ram in the thicket. And God stayed Abraham's hand as he lifted the dagger. And they took the ram in the thicket and placed the ram on the altar as a blood sacrifice, picturing the work that Jesus did for us that we'll picture here today. That, Isaiah, later in his life as an adult, we read in Genesis 26, now there was famine in the land. Famine. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, this is a second famine, a later famine. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Here's what Isaac was going to do. He was going to get out of town. There was famine. He had resources. He had mobility. He was going to go somewhere where he could take care of his family in more comfort than he was experiencing where he was. Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. That's what we're saying to ourselves today. Believers, let's keep sojourning in this land. Why? God says, I will be with you and I will bless you. And Isaac stayed in Gerar, in that land. Then here's this amazing sentence. And, and there are enough, enough farmers in the place that you probably live on this sentence sometimes. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. He was going to leave because there was famine. He needed to get his family to a better place. And God said, no, stay here. And I will bless you here in the middle of all that's coming against you in this land. And so he stayed and he sowed into the parched soil of the land where God put him. And God brought forth a hundredfold crop. 
And it finishes by saying, the Lord blessed Isaac. Regardless of our national or international situation, regardless of the spirit of heaviness that may come on us as the media media outlets pound us day after day, and we wonder as to where the truth is to be found, the Lord wants to bless his own. That's true. We need only trust and obey, as did Isaac. So that gets us to our text for today, Romans chapter 8, the latter part of Romans chapter 8, where we read there's no trouble tough enough to come between us and God if we are his children through Christ. Nothing can unstick us from him or him from us. We are not just held tight in trouble, but better yet, we win over trouble in a way that Paul describes as super victorious, which I don't know about you, but I think had Isaac gotten just an average crop in a famine year, he would have been happy. He got a hundredfold crop in a famine year because he trusted and obeyed the God of Abraham and the God of himself. So our text today is Romans chapter 8, verse 35 to 39. I just took a little piece of it because uh, we want to save time to come to the table. It's page 945 in your pew Bible. Romans eight thirty-five to 39. And here's the truth of this scripture. What Isaac experienced in the famine, in my illustration, we can experience today. Follow along as I read from the same version that you have there. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, this is from Psalm 44, it's a quote, as it is written, the apostle writes, for your sake we're being killed all day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What's he saying? He's saying, as Psalm 44 says, life is hard. Life is tough. The times are difficult. We feel kind of like we're sheep to be slaughtered sometimes when we're going through our day-to-day routines and listening to our neighbors and attending the funerals and watching the television and facing whatever it is we're facing personally, affliction, loss, difficulty. That's common. But, verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure. (laughs) Isn't it fun to be sure of something? I'm not sure about the wall. I'm not sure who's crossing the border. I'm not sure if anything happened in Russia. I'm not sure if there's anyone out there that's a trustworthy voice for the leadership of our nation. I'm not sure of whether we'll have enough to, uh, our economy will hold together going forward as we pile on a trillion dollars of debt every year. I'm not sure of any of those things, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure 
that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. I think we're all going to be annihilated. Well, I'm not worried about things to come. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. I love that Paul throws that in. I'm going to give you a long list, and then I'm just going to say, and anything else you can dream up. will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what I want you to take home today. That's what I want you to bring to the table. I'm getting ahead of myself, but isn't it interesting that at the Passover, Jesus left his disciples with this imbibing and ingesting of himself and said, take a little bread, take a little wine. This bread is me. This wine is me. Put it into you so that the cells of it become the cells of you. And you are inseparable from me. And why was that so timely? Because they were scared. Jesus is going away. Where is he going? And we don't know how to get there. What are we going to do? And Jesus said, yes, I'm going away, but I want to leave you this. I want to leave you this for the ages and for the churches of the globe, of all descriptions, in all places, in all time, till I come back to be with you again. I'm going to be part and parcel of who you are, and you are in me, and I am in you. And nothing can separate us from that. We saw the long list. Let me break the text quickly into four parts. The first is context. This is not a promise to everybody. It's a promise to those who believe and receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I don't want to imply a a feel-good universalism that says everything's going to be all right for everybody. It isn't. Everything's going to be all right for those who have received Jesus, believed on him, come to the table not as a religious ritual that you hope ritualistically will somehow make you different, but rather come to the table in the intimacy of understanding what Christ has done for you and what you have received by faith. That's the context here. Romans is a great book that goes through all of this teaching about who we are in Christ and exposing how the law has exposed our sin and our failure to live up to God's expectations. So somehow that had to be dealt with, and it's dealt with by Christ's sacrificial work, which was pictured 1,700 years before on Mount Moriah by Isaac being cared for by the ram in the thicket, the sacrificial, in this case, not lamb, but ram. And then in Romans 8, wow, I mean, again, we don't have time. We need the table, but just go home and read it. And then read it again. And if your neighbor thinks she's going to be annihilated, read it to her. Romans chapter 8. There, therefore, is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the context. Or verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit, and the ESV uh, puts it, capitalizes that spirit as the Holy Spirit 
of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. An intimate relationship which Paul goes on to describe as inseparable. In verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And it's possible there's someone here who just doesn't like that verse, Romans 8, 28, because somebody quoted it to you at the wrong time and in the wrong way. Let me tell you, I'm sorry they did that, and I'm sure it hurt, and it didn't feel good, and what you really needed was a hug before they quoted the verse. But let me be clear, the verse is still true. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So first, that's the context. That's who this is for, and I believe for virtually all of us, it's for us. Maybe you're not here today as a believer. Today can be the day you become a believer, and these promises become yours. Second, he asks three questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? The implied answer is nobody. And he goes on to answer, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We didn't read that verse, but it's verse 32. First question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Great memory verse. Great verse to quote when life's getting you down. Second question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You ever get charges brought against you in your head? Thor prayed about our identity in Christ, knowing who we are. Why? Because the accuser of the brethren, who's reported in Revelation chapter 12, goes around saying, you're a loser. Jesus is not Savior and Lord. And even if he was, you're so far out of the reach of his love that you can't be saved. So you just should go on living in the destructive way you're living because, John 10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, and that to the full. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We fast forward to Revelation chapter 12, and we see the accuser accusing us before God day and night until he's struck down and falls down and is uh, removed forever and ultimately cast into the lake of fire. We see this accuser coming against us. But we also see Jesus. In fact, we go on to verse 33. It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, paid the price to care for the sins that Satan's telling us are still ours. More than that, who was raised to demonstrate his victory over the last enemy, death, who is now at the right hand of the Father in the position of, of, of uh, privilege and who indeed is interceding for us. Listen to the difference. On one hand, you've got the accuser, and on the other hand, you've got the intercessor. One saying, you're a loser, and the other saying, you are more than conquerors through me. And that brings us to the third question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the implied answer is, no one and nothing. And just to make that plain, he goes on to the third part of the text and he gives 16 wrong answers. 
Now, I would love to talk about every one of these 16 wrong answers. I would like to give lengthy illustrations on every one of these 16 wrong answers. And if I did that, then we'd just finish the Lord's table and go right to the Super Bowl party. Because that's where we'd be. Incidentally, Thor invited us to the Super Bowl party, which I appreciate. Uh, I'm going to go home and take a nap instead. And fast and pray for the Rams. <laughs> oh, I, I, enjoy, I enjoy my jokes. Anyway, uh, I know. You, isn't that funny? You become kind of a silly old man, and you laugh at your own jokes. And Diane gives me mercy laughs down in the front row. Uh, anyway, the apostle, who can separate us? from this one who's part and parcel of us in physical demonstration, but in spiritual reality. Who can separate us? He gives 16 wrong answers. Tribulation or distress. Distress is part of how I got into the text because that heaviness I mentioned, it was like a distress. Or persecution. Diane's been working with a family from Pakistan. That's one of the amazing things about FaceTime and I don't know what you're using. Is it FaceTime? The whole world belongs to us in communication and help. And there's this Pakistani family that Diane came across through a pastor's wife's website. Is that right? Am I getting this right? The support group. And, and they had fled Pakistan because of persecution. Islamic radicalists had come into their church, had threatened to kill them. And they left Pakistan and went to Malaysia. Now, had they called me, I might have suggested somewhere else if they could get there. But they went to Malaysia. Now they're in Malaysia and they can communicate, but they have nothing. As it turns out, back home, the people who accosted them have now been uh, arrested and taken out of the picture so they can go back, but they don't have enough money to go back. And Diane's been working with them and encouraging them. And she's connected with people in England and people in the United States and I don't know where else. And she's driving me a little nuts with it, just to be clear. But (laughs) did I mention I need a ride home? (laughs) But she's helping them and she's pulling it together and she's going to get them home. And she's talked to people all over the world who are partnering with her to pull this off. Can persecution separate Amir and his family from the love of God? Might have felt like it for a while, but then they met Diane. And she became to them the love of God and others with her. Or famine, we've already talked about famine. Or nakedness, not having anything to wear. Or danger or sword, being physically threatened. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, there's my funeral verse, I'm getting a little heavy about funerals, death nor life can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Guess what the Lord spoke to me, he kind of whispered it to me at the last funeral that was down in Esterville at Grandview Baptist. At the last funeral, I was sitting there going, Lord, this is a beautiful funeral and lots of beautiful scriptures and really lovely songs and tears are running down my face. And I'm thinking, but why do I have to keep going to these? And it was like the Holy Spirit whispered and he said, because I'm getting you ready for yours, Rick. 
I'm giving you all the scriptures of Psalm 23 and John 14 and all the great promises, 1 Corinthians 15, all the great promises of our life in Christ forever, just to remind you that as the years roll on and whenever it is your time, nothing can separate you from the love of God, neither death nor life. Nor angels, nor rulers. Rulers is RK, that could be earthly rulers. I tend to think it's spiritual rulers, wickedness in high places. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. One time I was at a church in Canada, and I may have shared this here at some other time, but I said something in the evening service that upset a fellow in the front row, and he walked right up to the pulpit after the service. I was still standing here, just had concluded the benediction. He walked right, stood right beside me, and began to get in my face, and I took him down to the front row to talk to him, and out of him came this hissing voice, Porter, we hate you, we want to kill you. Now, I could have freaked out. I could have run. I could have said, I need to move my family. But what I said was, in Jesus' name, be quiet. And I wanted to add, you idiot. But I took the power of Christ, and that's one little story of dozens, (laughs) scores, of that kind of thing that happened to happen up there. But my point is this. That little threat from some demonic entity that happened to be controlling this man could not separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nor things present, nor things to come, no future fear, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Where did Paul get this list? Let me tell you where he got it. He lived it. I won't take time to read it. We're out of time. Go to 1 Corinthians 11 and just go to the message if you'd like because it's kind of fun to read it there. What all Paul went through and how he talked about it. And that book was written a little earlier than this book and I think he's looking back on all he'd been through and he was able to say, hey, guess what? Still here. Still loving Jesus. Still loved by Jesus. Still preaching Jesus. Still going on. So there's these 16 words that are suggestions of what could separate us, but none of them can, and they bring us to this final promise. No, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's another word that got me to this text. More than conquerors. My Greek was bad when I was going to seminary. Now, 50 years later, it's almost non-existent. But I love this word, hupernikao. Hupernikao. Let's get it into English. Huper, super. Nikao will go with the word we all know, Nike. Super victor. Supreme victory. No, in all these things, we are winners. By comparison, what we have in Christ makes a few Super Bowl rings seem like nothing. It makes a 41-year-old quarterback who can still throw the ball, but don't ask him to run. It makes him look... (laughs) 
it makes him look like a loser. We are more than conquerors. Not triumphalistic bullies. There's enough of that in the Christian church. Not going around beating on people and judging them. But humble, broken followers of Christ. Living what is properly called a cruciform life. Shaped like the cross. In the suffering of Jesus that we, amazing phrase, make up with Him. And enter into even as we receive the cup and bread. What was Isaac? Well, he could have let famine define him, and he tried to, but the Lord said, no, stay, and let me be the definition of your future. And in so doing, what did the Lord do? Gave him a good crop in the famine? Oh, way more than a good crop. Gave him a best crop ever in the famine. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, and now we'll dramatize that at the Lord's table. The essence of the elements becomes the essence of me. The church has struggled with how this all works and what it all means. But one thing it surely means is that when we come by faith to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, when we reenact His sacrifice to us in love and submission and trust month after month, week after week, year after year, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, I was going to pray before we went to the Lord's table, but I heard Thor pray. And we don't need a rookie up here. Lead us, Thor. <laughs>